This is Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and you are listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. Only in this universe. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. We're thrilled to have not one, but two fascinating guests this week. Max Allen Collins is a New York Times best-selling author, screenwriter, musician, and filmmaker who has written... Dozens of novels, comic books, comic strips, short stories, movie novelizations, and historical fiction. His graphic novel, Road to Perdition, is the basis of the Oscar-winning film starring Tom Hanks and Paul Newman. And his comics credits include the syndicated strip, Dick Tracy, Batman, and his own mystery, and CSI crime scene investigation based on the hit series. He's been called the novelization king by Entertainment Weekly, with tie-in books appearing nine times on the USA Today bestseller list and twice on the New York Times list. He's also written and directed five features and documentaries, including the Lifetime movie, Mommy, and the HBO world premiere, The Expert, and his one-man show, Elliot Ness, An Untouchable Life, was nominated for an Edgar by Mystery Writers of America, a lifelong fan of Mickey Spillane. He would go on to collaborate with the famed writer on a comic book called Mike Danger. And upon his death, he was entrusted to finish uncompleted works by Spillane, including The Big Bang and Murder My Love. And also, This man claims he loved my work on Saturday Night Live in the 80s. So, I can already tell you, this guy has a screw loose. (laughs) And our returning guest, Dave Thomas, is a popular and prolific actor, writer, comedian, producer, and director and one of the most inventive comedy minds of his generation. You've seen him in films like Stripes, Rat Race, Conehead, Strange Brew, which he even co-wrote and directed. You also know his uh, work from hit TV shows like The Simpsons, King of the Hill, Weeds, Arrested Development, Grace Under Fire, and his own series, 
the Dave Thomas Comedy Show. And as a writer, he scripted episodes of acclaimed drama programs like Bones and The Blacklist and co-wrote the movie Spies Like Us. For five seasons, he was one of the writers and stars of the beloved sketch comedy show SCTV, giving life to such unforgettable characters as Bill Needle, Tex Boyle, Harvey Keitel, and Angus Crock. He's also managed to win a Primetime Emmy and was nominated for a Grammy and receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy of Canadian Film and Television, as well as an appointment to the Order of Canada, Canada's highest civilian award. And along with Henry Winkler, he's our only guest out of nearly 400 to have a statue erected in his honor. (laughs) Their brand new novel and first ever collaboration is the sci-fi thriller The Many Lives of Jimmy Layton. And they're here to talk about it and to explain quantum physics to Frank and me. That should be easy. Please welcome to the show Max Alan Collins and Dave Thomas. Oh, and our special guest Bob Hope stopped by. Hey, how are you kids doing? You know I'm dead now. Uh, the best thing about being dead is I don't have to wake up with soldiers in my cup. But you know, I I, I did a special here at Bob Hope live from hell at a couple of generals that set off a twenty. Kiloton nuclear bomb in my honor. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? (laughs) Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome, Dave. Welcome, Max. Hey, how are you? Hi, guys. Dave, welcome back. Max, welcome. And uh, Gilbert, just to refer to something you said in the intro, yes, and welcome, Mr. Hope. Leslie Towns Hope. Yes, in fact, thank you, thank Max, you. Max is a fan of your work on on SNL. He may be the first one we've had. The only one. I'm not yeah. a fan of my work for Max show. <laughs> I knew you had something special, Gilbert. I had no idea what it was, but I knew it was special. <laughs> <laughs> so you liked my work on that season? We are the one. Yes. <laughs> Because, boy, I can't watch anything from that season. Well, let's let's be honest. You weren't surrounded by comedy legends. <laughs> well, you he had Eddie. In a he good way. Eddie. You stuck yeah. out a good way. Well, yes. but Yeah, yeah. And, and D- Dave had his own adventures in that building, didn't you, Dave? I did, actually. Uh, we got stopped in an elevator by security because the we took the president of NBC's elevator instead of the one we were supposed to take, Rick and I, Moranis and I. Uh, was that the adventure you were t- thinking well, about? I, I was referring to the new show, but we don't have to. Uh, oh, the new uh, show. We don't have to well, go there right off the bat, although we did lose Buck since the last time you were here. That's true. What so a sad, be. sad thing. Oh, what a wonderful guy. Yeah. I also watched the new show. There you go. Well, you're the one. 
Right. <laughs> have you have you kind of got a fix on how lonely a life I lead yet? Dave, on the subject of the new show, just quickly, I mean, you, I was, I sent Max a couple of clips that you can find on YouTube. I mean, you're in every sketch. I know they didn't have a lot of money, (laughs) so I had to fill in for everybody. You know, no, it, it, it was, it was a sad, sad thing. It was in Lauren's hiatus between his two stints on SNL, and he really did nothing to help that show. And I remember, I remember there was a guy on the writing staff named Jack Handy. Oh, sure. And Jack would write his, Jack would come, Lauren's MO is that he comes in about 7 p.m. and sort of hangs until, you know, uh, 7 in the morning. And that's, everyone's supposed to stay there with him. Well, Jack, Jack's on a nine to five hours. Jack Handy would come in, write his scripts. He'd leave them on Lauren's desk and he'd leave at five. So he was making a statement, I think. Wow. You know, you look at the talent in that show. I'm watching the clips. I mean, Catherine O'Hara and Carrie Fisher and Paul Newman, uh, Paul Newman, Paul Paul Simon and Randy Newman and Jeff Goldblum and you and Buck and Gilda and Candy. I mean, it's 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 in, and Steve Martin. It's incredible. A, amount yeah. of talent for, for a and show the, that was so underserved and, and underloved. Well, we we were out of 72 shows. We were 68th in the rating. How about that, huh? I mean, Lauren, <laughs> Lauren reversed his success from SNL with the new show. Yeah, you can and find now, it, though. Now, now, Dave, may I remind you, you directed a film called The Experts. Oh, yes, I know where you're going. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I want to give the audience some time to go, how did I miss that one? Now, I remember I was flying from New York to L.A. to audition for the experts, and I was sitting next to former Monkey Band member and heir to the Whiteout fortune. Liquid paper, technically. Uh, li- yes, 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 liquid paper fortune. Uh, Mike Nesmith, who is the monkey with the wool cap. And, and wh- while I'm sitting there next to him, I take out the script, and I'm like looking through it, and he says, "Hey, uh, what's that script about?" And I said, "Oh, it's uh, these two hip, cool guys who are kidnapped by Russian spies uh, to teach them how to look hip and cool and infiltrate the country." And without taking a breath, Mike Nesmith says, "Sounds like a piece of shit." <laughs> <laughs> And then, then a short time later, two years or so later, I run into this actor, um, Ari Gross, I think it was. Yeah. And and, sure. and I said to him, you know, I auditioned uh, for the part you played in The Experts. And he said, consider yourself lucky. Oh, we, what a little weasel. We, we like to something. insult the guests, Dave, right off the top. You're... Gilbert, your audition was probably one of the funniest auditions that I've ever seen. You're, uh, I, I thought it was a pairing. You and Travolta would have been a pairing that would have become a cult favorite. But, you know, the studio didn't want to do it. And they actually didn't want Travolta either. They didn't want me either. But they decided <laughs> to go ahead and make the movie with all the people they didn't want. That is why it was Gil- such a hit. <laughs> you, you and Travolta could have been another Wheeler and Woolsey. 
I like Wheeler and Woolsey. I know he does, and he likes he likes the Ritz brothers. Team up! I got to team up with John Travolta, and look who's talking too. Oh yeah, that's right. And dance now, Max. In addition to being a Gilbert fan, you you you're also a Dave Thomas fan. Oh yeah, as any as anyone with any common sense would be. So that's a. That's basically my setup for the the question, how the hell did you guys come together and come to work on this novel? Well, we had kind of met a couple of times. I had waylaid him in a non-sexual way at at San Diego Con one year, and uh, he looked at me askance, I believe is the term. He's very nice, really, but I was just a crazed fan because to me, the SCTV bunch, they were the comedy Beatles. I mean, just, you know, I was absolutely a big fan, as they say. Yeah, sure. So then my wife and I went to the SCTV reunion that was part of the 50th anniversary of Second City in, uh, you know, in Chicago a couple of years ago. And it was, we found out about it late, so it was very, very um, expensive to go. So I asked her, Okay, it's going to be our 50th wedding anniversary. Do you want to go to Paris or do you want to go see the cast of SCTV in Chicago? And she said, oh, SCTV, absolutely. And so that's that's where we ended up going. And I did meet him there briefly and uh, behaved myself very badly around all these people I admired. And then back at the San Diego Comic-Con another a, a year or so later, um, Tom Kenny, the, you know. For, SpongeBob. In, yeah, for inexplicable reasons, is a big fan of mine. Mm-hmm. And he knew that I was a big SCTV guy, and he came up to me and said, well, I'm going to have lunch next week with with Dave Thomas. Why don't you come up to to L.A. and and meet him? And I said, I can't. I got, I got to go. My wife and I are going back tomorrow night. I can't do it. And so he very nicely, sweetly had Dave call me on the phone just to say hello and introduce himself. It was, it's a big, big uh, thrill for me. It's been downhill ever since. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the thing. The big charm for me is until you meet me and then it all goes to hell. Oh, and, and Dave, um, let's talk about the jaw droppingly horrible Bob Hope special. By the name of Joys. <laughs> oh, Dave it, has Dave has something on this. Yes, yes. Well, okay. This was at a point in Bob's career and life when he he couldn't he, leaving the house was a big problem. Whoever suggested this show, I forget the guy's name, but he gets a credit at the end of the show. Bob immediately said, "Well, we can shoot this in my house," and that was <laughs> that sealed the deal. Now. It was, I mean, I couldn't believe the star power, and I watched it. Frank dared me to watch it. I oh, yeah, I did. I originally saw it when it came out, but I, that was so many years ago, I, don't, I didn't really remember it. Frank dared me to get through five minutes of this show. <laughs> it's, the least you, it's the least you could do. It was a challenge, I got to tell you, because with all this star power, there wasn't one laugh. And I called Frank afterwards, and I said, you know, I think they shot that show after Bob died and they just kind of propped him up and, you know, and, and that's, <laughs> he still had his, he wasn't as bad as your, the other one that you love. 
Jack, uh, Jack, oh, Frost. Jack, Jack, Jack Frost. Frost. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, then he was really old, but here he was just very old. And uh, <laughs> well, you know, I always thought that Jack Frost was Dolores's revenge for all yes. the times he's fucked around on her. <laughs> yes. Okay, so because he should have been shot years before. <laughs> oh yeah, I I asked Bob when I was doing Bob Hope salutes the young comedians with him, and we had a I had a lunch where I just sat in the stage asking Bob questions. And I asked him questions, I asked him things that I always wanted to know, like, hey, how come you never played Vegas? You know, Hope looks at me, he goes, well, why do you want to know? And I was just like, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I had heard that, you know, Dolores, being a devout Catholic, had some, and he gets mad and he says, she has no say in what I do. <laughs> he, got a little, he had a little quaver in his voice there, you wow. know. And I, and I said, okay, hey, sorry. And, and, and Hope's mad now. And he says, he said, I'll tell you why I never played Vegas. He said, around about 1960, I had this idea for a show where I'd be the highest paid entertainer to ever play Vegas. And they never came up with the money. So I just said, screw them. And then I, I never went there again. So that was his idea for a show. That he would be the highest paid entertainer to ever play Vegas. I don't know what the script for that would be like, but that was his idea for a show. What are you saying know. when he shot when he shot Joy's in his house? He pissed off everybody because he gave them a crappy box lunch. And oh Steve, yeah, you, yeah. You, you told me that Steve Allen was particularly resentful. Oh yeah. They, okay, he was famous for that. That you know he did the show the. Bob salutes the young comedians. Uh, Bob Hope salutes the young comedians. Where he was too old to host, so they asked NBC asked Crystal Bernard and I to host, and Bob would just kind of be on the show. And uh, I remember, so I played him in the show, and I had a monologue in the show, and he was going through the script with his daughter Linda, who was the producer, and uh, he says, "This monologue of mine," he said, "He said I, I think we could do." On the earthquake joke, you know, we could throw in the, I danced around the house, and then the house danced around me. And Linda said, well, Dad, that's not your joke. That's Dave Thomas's joke when he's playing you. And he said, oh, yeah? He said, well, put it in anyway. If he's going <laughs> to do me, he should do me the way I would do me. And then, <laughs> and then there were the box lunches. <laughs> Which everybody in the crew and 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 cast got the same lunch, and I heard this was the same lunch they had on that other show. And we open it up and look at it and go, "Okay, I think I could go without lunch today." Because <laughs> <laughs> it really is, like you said, you look at the list of celebrities on there, and you think this has to be laughs from beginning to end. Can't miss. And and oh my God, it's deadly to watch. And I and I think the idea was because Jaws was big. Yeah. So this was a play on Jaws instead of Jaws Joys. Yeah. <laughs> but it was wait, are we talking about the show that he shot his house, which was the Who Done It detective thing? No, the yes. one, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the one where the guy, the, the, there's a, the, somebody is found dead in the swimming pool. Yes, at, shot at Bob's house, but it was supposedly a Jaws parody somehow. 
Okay, but there's that's it. That yeah. from then on, there's no more reference to the ocean, no. sharks, no. jaws, or anything. No, no. It's just, <laughs> it's just called it jaws. It was what bad not, jokes. Not until not until I read it did I get like, oh, jaws, jaws. I guess it sounds similar. <laughs> no one, no one of the millions of people watching would have caught this alleged joke. And they Matt, got, he still had clout then because they got Johnny Carson at the end yeah. to play the bad guy. He takes yeah. off his mask and it's yeah. Carson. And it's like, oh man, Johnny, poor Johnny. I bet he hated <laughs> well, that. Jesus, Groucho's in the thing. Matt, Max, yes. I, sent, I sent you the uh, Jack Frost clip because I, t- I, t- I warned you to, that we were going to talk about this. Did you have a, a, a reaction? Yeah, I passed out. it it, it was amazing but you know dave and i have talked about bob hope quite a bit because i mean we both are genuine fans i mean obviously you know this comes from a place of love for for dave and and the idea that you know the woody allen idea that there's nothing funnier than a movie that he did in the late 30s early 40s even up into the 50s what you know what a master and then when you see this stuff why did he stay? And we have to, at our age, wonder, are we staying at the party too long? Because this guy, you know, he worked to be, what, 100? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He did live to be 100. Yeah. And he would have stayed on the air till 100 if the network let him. And yeah. and I, the story is, and I heard this from Linda, that Dolores leaned over him and said, Dad, we've t- Dolores said, Bob, we've talked to the uh, uh, president and you can be buried in Arlington or you can be buried out here in the the Catholic cemetery in the valley. And Hope goes, well, yeah, I, I don't know. Why don't you surprise me? <laughs> <laughs> so he was still in there at least a little bit, wasn't he? <laughs> that's, that's a good joke for a guy yeah, on his deathbed. Pretty good. Pretty hey, good. Frank, Frank sent me a clip. It was a horrifying clip of Bob Hope uh, entertaining at a college. Oh, and, and people you seen there, this clip, Dave? No. And, and yeah. talk about stayed at the party too long. It's sad. It's him bombing at a college in his 90s. And he's, oh, he was in his 90s? Or at least late 80s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah hard to watch. Uh, on the subject of old comedy, I'm gonna, I'm, we'll come back to the novel. But Max, uh, make your case that you made to me on the phone. Gilbert, Max is a fan. Well, he loves Jerry. He shares your love of Jerry. Yes, absolutely. Yes. But I do not. And and uh, I, I want him to make his case for the Ritz brothers real quick. Oh, OK. <laughs> go, go why, why does a case need to be made for them? I, I don't understand the question. The real case is, is very basic. You got no... Danny Kaye, you got no Sid Caesar, you got no Mel Brooks, you got no Jerry Lewis without Harry Ritz. And you kids don't have a sense of history is your problem. That's the that's the problem with this show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I noticed that. It's all this new shit. This new shit you come yeah. up with. Yeah. We're, we're the only you, podcast you talking about Harry Ritz. You kids with your rock and roll music <laughs> and your hippie haircut yeah. and your free love. <laughs> Why aren't you paying for it like the smart people? Dave, I meant to ask you this, too. You know, you do an imitation of Bob Hope as, you know, we we knew him most of his career. 
as that like growling uh, guy reading the giant cue cards. <laughs> but do you also do an imitation of him when he was the young Bob Hope and he was nothing like that? It's really hard to do that, Hope. He was known then as Rapid Robert. And he's so fast that I can't get going that fast. I'd have to have the jokes ready to go, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, the Al-Qaeda, you know, that, 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 that they, they got the world convinced. Hey, hey. No, see, I can't do it. I got to have, have the material in front of me <laughs> to be there's able to do it that fast. There's at you least know? four um, Bobs that I've seen you do, Dave. There's, 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 uh, there's old Bob. There's there's dead Bob now that you brought up. There's I saw you do a Scottish Bob. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, I did uh, I did another one on HBO, uh, Bob Dice Hope, where it, it was like Bob Bob being re- really foul mouthed, you know, and uh, I I don't know. But, it, but, but you know, he, he used to just whip through his stuff so fast. You know, he'd be talking about Dolores. He'd say, you know, I told her to scatter my ashes at Neiman Marcus. You know, at least she'd visit me once a day. And, and then the audience would, ah, and then he'd do the next thing. And this is where the classic Bob Hope segue came, because Bob would hang, you know, for the audience lap. But, you know, but I feel that, but, you know, these days, but seriously, folks, that's the one most people know. But seriously, folks, and then that was the hang while the audience laughed and then plow right into the next joke. So he was a real it- pneumatic piston joke mm-hmm. driver in his youth. And I remember the first time I met Carson, um, I was doing a Billy Crystal special at NBC. And they they said, oh, Johnny's doing his tea time movies. Would you like to meet him? And I God, yeah, Carson, I'd love to meet him. So we, they walk us down there, and Carson had heard about my hope, and he's saying, and I was with John Candy and Rick Moranis. The three of us were meeting Carson. And uh, Carson goes on, he starts talking about hope. He says, you know, he said, you'll, you'll, you'll talk to hope, and, and you'll say, you know, Bob, my mother just died, and he'll, and he'll just do a golf joke. He'll say, yeah, but, but I want to tell you, and I, I don't know why I did this, but I felt it. I felt it was necessary to defend Bob, and I said to Johnny, I said, "Well, you know, John, um, he paved the way for the monologue. I mean, he was the guy who made the monologue something that comedians like yourself could do." And I could feel Candy and Moranis <laughs> fading. Back and it's just like okay, Dave, you want to take on Johnny Carson? You out of your fucking mind? <laughs> and then Johnny just no, 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 no. He backed off, but I think there was a kind of a thing there. Later on, after I did the Carson show, and he found out that I knew him, and I, I got to have lunch with him and and talk, and you know, he sort of explained that you know, overstaying your welcome was something that he thought was Hope's biggest. Transgression, and he was absolutely determined never to do it himself, and he didn't. So there you go. And, there you and go. there's something else that I noticed. When I watched uh, a later Hope and Crosby movie where he had turned from the young, energetic Bob Hope to the one that you do. That's The Road to Hong Kong. That, yeah. He did that in 1960, 
And I remember I was 11 years old and I went to that movie after being an avid Hope fan from, you know, Monsieur Beaucaire and, mm. you know, all the movies that he oh, did yeah. that were fabulous and funny. And I remember leaving the theater depressed because I just thought, well, that sucked. That was a terrible, I'm 11. That was a terrible movie. <laughs> I cannot believe how he's disappointed me. He looked like he was reading the cue cards in that yeah, movie. He probably was. He probably was. But, but isn't it true that there's a lot of the great comics, uh, they don't work as older people? Because, I mean, Jerry Lewis is a kid. Uh Bob Hope is this uh, woman, you know, this this kind of would be Lothario. And most of these comics, when they cross a certain age threshold, the ones that had the movies where they did, you know, they had vehicles. For, mm-hmm. It doesn't work anymore. And mm-hmm. it gets embarrassing. Danny Kaye gets pretty bad, too. If, if, if you've ever tried to sit through The Man from the Diners Club which is a Frank Tashlin movie, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's a chore. So I, I assume when you, you say you were a fan of Jerry, young Jerry. Well, I had a good friend who said the only thing funnier than Jerry Lewis at his best is Jerry Lewis at his worst. And I think there's some truth to that. <laughs> That's profound. <laughs> and and what Jerry good. Lewis, when he did his... And and this happened to Abbott and Costello and the Stooges and all our great comics. You know, it would have Jerry Lewis there and he'd have a job helping out in a gas station, cleaning <laughs> windows. And I, and when he was young, that would be really funny. But you're going, oh, God, this guy's in his 60s and uh, he's got a job wiping you windows. Know, you know what the turning point for Jerry was? Yeah. The Nutty Professor. When he found the character Buddy Love, the cool guy that smoked the cigarettes that men were afraid of and women wanted to be with, he never wanted to be anyone else. And that was the guy he played on his telethons for 20 years after that. Interesting. He, lo- he I- believed he was Buddy Love. I remember in an interview, Jerry Lewis said when he came up with that character, he goes, well, it scared me because I was wondering, <laughs> is there any part of me that's like that character? <laughs> All of you. All of you. (laughs) (laughs) My God. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Let's talk about a couple of other early comedy influences. And I thought this was fun. Uh, uh, Dave was a big Mad Magazine fan. And Max was a big Mad Magazine fan. In fact, Max, you made your own mad imitation, your own mad knockoff. Yeah, I did. I, I wanted to be a cartoonist initially, and I would. I wrote a thing called Psycho Ward. Mm-hmm. Already, you know, I was like 12 or 13, already politically incorrect. And I would uh, take the one, co- it wasn't a copy, I would take the original, it was stapled, and I'd hand it around at the beginning of the, like, Friday at homeroom, and it would circulate around the school, and then somebody give it back to me at the end of the day. And so, yeah, I loved Mad. But I'm so old that I remember it as a comic book. Sure. And it, and, and it turned into a magazine and trying to get my parents to spend, you know, 25 cents on a magazine, you know, in the, in the late fifties was a chore. I grew up on mad and those guys, Dick DiBartolo, Bartolo, Larry Siegel, 
You know, those writers that wrote the movie parodies were my favorite. Lou Silverstone, the- Arnie Kogan, Stan Hart. Yeah, I love them all. And you, God bless you, gave me a chance to connect with Dick DiBartolo because I loved him, I think, probably better than all of them. My and pleasure. I got a chance to connect with him and call him and talk to him this week, which was fantastic. They, I'm glad. You know, those guys had a real influence on a whole generation of comedians, I think. I grew up on that magazine. And, and we had one on this show. Uh, well, we had Dick and Al Jaffe here. Yeah, Al Jaffe. Yeah. Al's 100. And, yeah. Al Jaffe told us stories, and it's it just was fascinating. I mean, his life, his childhood was just horrible. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a sad story. You can hear that on the episode. But when you guys got on the phone together, and obviously, you know, before you started talking about the collaboration, you you guys share a lot of passions. What what did you start talking about? Did you start talking about hope, about mad, about SETV? What what were the initial conversations like? Because you you do come from different worlds. Yeah, but we're we're about the same age. Uh-huh. And, <clears throat> yeah. You know, so we grew up at the same time. I mean, look at our you know. You can't see it, but we have almost identical offices. Yes. <laughs> cluttered with books, Blu-rays, you know, statues, whatever. He's, you know, he's got his Emmys. I've got my, you know, best award from the Iowa Motion Picture Association. Pretty much gone. Hey, don't cut and- that award. <laughs> <laughs> don't undersell yourself, Max. You're also in the Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I am in the Iowa Rock twice. Yeah, which I remind everyone in my band of that fact regularly because they've only been in once. Oh, and Max, talk about another comedy team uh, where you watch their later movies and go, I'm certain they were funny at one time. And that's the Marx Brothers, how awful their later movies were. Well, again, staying too long. Yeah, and although I watched A Night in Casablanca recently and thought it had its moments. Yeah, it's not bad. And and that happens with a lot of these guys, like like with Jerry Lewis, you'll you'll be watching something just deadly, uh you know, like what which way to the front, and then suddenly there'll be five hilarious minutes. And that happens quite a bit, even in like when he did Hardly Working, which is the movie you're referring to, Gilbert, where he's yeah. he's been yes. you know he but but he all, there's also a moment where he, he's in an art gallery and he opens up a porthole on the wall and gets hit with a, a million gallons of water. And it's hysterical. And for 15 seconds, 30 seconds, he's Jerry Lewis. Yeah. When you watch that, you go, oh, there's the Jerry I want. Exactly. Yeah. The bellhop, for example, he did a thing. He knocked a glass off a table and caught it. Before yes. It hit. Yes. And I, I remember looking at that and I'm going, whoa, I wonder how many takes they had to do to, to, to get that. And there's a scene, I think it's in the uh, Aaron Boy or the might be the Patsy, uh, where he meets up with Hans Conried. And it's my favorite clumsy setup for a joke where they say to Jerry, uh, now he's a music teacher. And not only is he the greatest music teacher in the country, but he has the world's largest collection of priceless antiques. (laughs) Where where is that going? (laughs) 
<laughs> oh God! Let let us. Uh, I got some really interesting stuff written down here, and we'll come back to to, to funny people. But I got to ask Max about uh, uh, some of the non comedic icons and legends he's written about. Gilbert and I were on the phone, and Elliot Ness is a, is a, a character and a person that fascinates us. He was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> His early stuff. Yeah, the earlier stuff. <laughs> a little bit later. He, you know, Capone never thought he was that funny. But uh, <laughs> what, what were you saying on the phone, Max, that we forget we, when we think of these guys as, as legends and as larger than life, we forget how young they were. Oh, incredibly young. Elliot Ness, when he when he takes over the untouchables and he's already he's already been a, a federal officer for maybe four years is 27. Oh, and my God. 26 or 27. And Capone at his height is 29. Oh, yeah. So these are these are street gang kids who just moved up a little bit and they usually started out as street, street gang kids and then just kind of worked their way up the ladder. And then, of course, prohibition happened and that just gave everybody a a license to steal. Literally, uh, the the part of Al Capone's life that fascinates me the most is uh, is his late years. Oh, yeah. Did when he's riddled with that? syphilis? Yes, he went crazy from syphilis. Yes, he yeah. would, uh, He would. you know, he'd sit at a swimming pool in Miami and fish in the swimming pool. I mean, it, he, he was gone. Although he, wow. could be, he could be lucid at times, uh, like Dave and me. But, uh, <laughs> I work with... I, you you, I you guys with, have a, Cap, a Capone nest dynamic, I think. Yeah. The, the yeah. problem with us is we're both nests. And <laughs> I've worked with some non comedic legends. I, I did a, a movie with Chevy Chase, so then. <laughs> he gets such a bad rap. Everybody is, everybody's into beating up on Chevy, and I actually love him. And here's why I love him. Because Chevy has this reputation of being a jerk, but he wasn't a jerk just to the people below him on the set and the crew who could hurt him. He was a jerk to everybody, like the presidents of studios. Here's a great example. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever had the balls to tell this story, but I will. Chevy was at a, a thousand-dollar-a-plate dinner for Michael Eisner, and you know he was—he told them in advance he's not a stand-up. He said, I'm not a stand-up. He said, don't worry, you know. He said, well, you've got some stand-ups that are going to be on the day. I said, yeah, but, you know, you're just going to get up and say hi to Eisner. So Chevy says he gets there, and, you know, Robin Williams gets up. Ho, ho, look at me, ho, Mr. Happy. And then, you know, Billy, <laughs> Billy Crystal gets up, and he goes, I don't know. I, I like you. Why don't you like me? And he does his thing. And then Chevy Chase, ladies and gentlemen, Chevy gets up, and he goes, Jesus. You know, I got nothing. He goes, I'm not a stand-up. I don't do stand-up comedy. And these guys get up and, you know, Billy does his Catskills thing and, you know, Robin, <laughs> who I don't even know how to describe what you do. And and he turns in this awkward moment and looks at Mike Leisner, who's sitting right there at waist level with Chevy. And Chevy turns to him and looks out at the audience and said, how many of you people would like to see me piss in this guy's mouth right now? The audience went ape shit nuts, and the other half gasped. <laughs> wow. Wow. So I love him for that. Because, yeah, ballsy. You know what I mean? He, 
he just, he couldn't edit himself ever. And he said terrible things to me, and I've just laughed because I'm just thinking, yeah, well, at least you're not pissing in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go back to Ness in a second, but Dave, since you're telling stories, since you're you're going for it, can you tell – can you tell Max and and uh, and Gilbert the Richard Pryor story when you guys were on mo- on the on the movie Moving? Okay, that's, that's a well, great story. So Richard Pryor Richard Pryor hated white people. Okay, that's just a fact, and I'm sure he would be the first to admit it. So I played his boss in this movie that I did with him called Moving, and there was a scene where we were going to be shooting in this car where I'm driving or he's driving, I don't know, but the car gets wrecked. And it was like a week. We're going to be in this car for a week, towed by a camera car. And I'm like, oh, God. And he he's not talking to me. And we're sitting there silently and, you know, this is the first day of the car shoot. And I could see the crew, they're all sitting in the, uh, in the truck in front of us that's towing us. Uh, Alan Metter was the director and they all got headphones on. And we're mic'd so they can hear us. And so there's a palpable silence as I'm sitting across from Richard, and I thought, okay, I'm either going to get fired or I'm going to get a laugh. I don't care which at this point. And I turned to Richard, and I said, hey, Richard. He turns back at me kind of argumentatively, what? And I said, is it all D live long day or all D live long day? (laughs) And he burst out laughing, and he said, you are one ballsy motherfucker. And I said, hey, look, man, fire me, laugh, I don't care, but don't just sit here silent with, silently with me for a whole week. I can't take it. And I could see the camera crew just gasps when I said that. It was like, oh, no, holy shit. Anyway. And that was our first telephone conversation. This is just like that. He actually exactly. liked Gil- he liked Gilbert, Dave. I don't know what yeah, I don't know why you rubbed I, him the wrong way. I, I worked for two weeks on the last of the it was horrible. The last of the Gene Wilder Richard Pryor movies. Oh. And and he treated me like he was a starstruck little kid meeting like really? the biggest movie star. He couldn't have been nicer to me. Another SNL fan. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, he I, said, I loved that season from <laughs> 80 to 81. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. That was a good season. <laughs> and I, I loved you and Funky Monkey. <laughs> you God. invoke that out of people, though, Gilbert. I mean, I treated you that way when you came into audition for the experts. He does. People love you. People just love you. Come on. He does. He's Don't beloved. Be shy. There's no point in going back to Elliot Ness, but I will ask one question of of, of Max. Max, w- uh, close closer in reality to the Costner portrayal or the Robert Stack portrayal, in your opinion? Actually, they both have elements that that I think really were faithful. Uh, Stack actually talked to Ness's wife and and did some some work. Wow. And be- and became something of 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 an expert on him. The big myth about Elliot Ness has become that he didn't do anything, that he was nobody. But in fact, as uh, as we dug into it, I had a co-author, Brad Schwartz. As we really dug into the research, he was pretty much for real. And he even turned when there's a very famous 
uh, newsreel footage of Ness being taken to the train to go to the Atlanta penitentiary. And Ness is right there with him. And it's the only footage we have of him. But Ness was the guy that put him on the train. Did he die in debt? Well, he it, pretty much he died. Yeah. He he was a he was a, a probably an alcoholic. At least he was a a real drinker, which is one of the wonderful ironies. Obviously, I mean, here's the the world's most famous prohibition agent, and he was an alcoholic. But for him, it was never about alcohol being bad. It was that prohibition had opened the door on all of this all of this organized crime, and so he wanted to really take apart organized crime. And that's what that was about. And and all those actors were like twice the age of yeah. Elliot. Yeah. That's Except right. our friend Dave Thomas played an Elliot Ness character on The Simpsons, Rex Banner. That's true. <laughs> and I was still, I was three times their age at that point. <laughs> I want to do a shout out to a guy who played Capone in the TV series. You guys probably don't know this, but there was a TV series about the Untouchables that was, I don't know, in the 90s or something. And it was on, I think it was uh, the CW or whatever the CW was before it was the CW. Yeah, remember that. Yeah. Okay, right. William Forsythe. Do you know who Wonderful. this actor yes, is? Sure, yes. Oh, he played Flat Top in Dick Tracy. Yeah. Yes. He played Capone, and he was great. He did a fantastic Capone. The, uh, I, the, the guy who played Frank Nitty. Uh, who I knew a little bit. I, I was on the set of that a couple of times. The same uh, show I'm talking about? Yes, yes. Okay. I was there. Because I had an Elliot Ness novel out at the time, and they took me to the set so that we could do some cross-promotion. And uh, he was a very good Frank Nitty, although Frank Nitty's real name was Frank Nitto. I don't know how it kind of evolved into being Nitty in all the popular culture. Uh, but uh, that was a pretty, pretty good show. And the characters there were a little bit younger. The actors were a little bit younger. I don't imagine Forsyth was older than about maybe 35 at the time. Oh, yeah. He was didn't, young. Didn't Ben Gazzara play Capone at yes. some point? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Ben Gazzara, two two actors who are favorites of mine, Ben Gazzara and Rod Steiger. Oh, yep. oh Steiger, right. Oh, yes. Very good. That must have been a subtle portrayal. That was a Corman <laughs> production, and it wasn't a terribly, you know, High budget production, obviously, because it was a Roger Corman uh, production. And and meanwhile, Ben Gazzara looked like he weighed 140 pounds. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Max, since Dick Tracy was brought up by me, actually, t- uh, and you you took over the strip when when Chester Gould retired, right? And uh, first of all, quickly, what what was Chester Gould like? Because you corresponded with him. Oh, yeah, I had corresponded with him as a ch- as a child. Actually, <laughs> when I was eight years old, I wrote him and said, hey, "When you when you stop doing the strip, could I could I start?" I love that. And then eventually, that's what happened. Although there were a few steps in between, uh, he was very flinty. He was very much like uh, very much like Dick Tracy. And I I think the best thing I can say is I was there at, and we were at his house. And a friend of mine who was a fan, we came downstairs after we'd stayed overnight with them, and Chet said uh, that he had some originals for us. And then he had a little stack of originals. He says, now you can you can have two or you can have one. <laughs> that, that's the only time. So, so he wasn't like the soul of generosity. 
Uh, but I, and my wife does that to me all the time. You can have two or you can have That's one. That's funny. That's funny. And what did Chester Gould think of Fearless Fosdick? He pretended to like it because the fact was that anytime Al Cap did Fearless Fosdick and Lil Abner, papers picked up Dick Tracy because you can't, Mad Magazine again, you can't understand the satire unless sure. you know the reference. Parody doesn't work without the reference. So he made money off of Fearless Fosdick, but every now and then he'd say to me, enough is enough. <laughs> I love that. I bring. I also bring up Dick Tracy because someone, uh, Max was a consultant on the Beatty picture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you, you did some writing of the novelization. You did something in the Dick Tracy novelization that, that got Beatty's attention. Well, that was the most micromanaged production in, in history. And all of the licensing stuff was very micromanaged. In fact, when they did the comic book, which I didn't do, mm-hmm. Beatty had approved three different heads for Dick Tracy to be used on all, pasted in on all the drawings, all the, all the artwork. So if you ever saw that comic book, you'd see just three different drawings repeated endlessly and I had a phone call after I turned the novelization in and the producer of the film who was not, it wasn't Beatty. It was the other guy. I forget his name, but he was a big shot. He, he direct, he was the producer of the various Lord of the Rings movies. So he was big time. Okay. And he, he they were asking me why I had made certain changes in the novel. And one of them was, one of them was, why did, uh, why did you write this so that Tess Trueheart, Dick Tracy's sweetheart, why did you write it so that her mother liked Dick Tracy? Because in the original script, she hated Dick Tracy, was trying to break her daughter up with Dick Tracy. And I said, well, because in the strip, the beginning of the strip is Dick Tracy solving the murder of that woman's husband. So she likes him. And anybody who's familiar with the history of the strip when they get to that scene, mm-hmm. they're going to know it's it's wrong. So so they actually reshot the scene. Uh, it, was, it was Estelle Parsons. And then I ran into her. I'd never met her. I ran into her at the premiere in Disney World. And I introduced myself and said, you had to re- you had to reshoot one of the scenes, didn't you? And she said, yes. I said, it was because of me. Well, this stranger, how could it be because of you? And, I said, and then I told her the story. I love because, it. And, and that's why they did it. But it was it was a crazy experience. They made me leave the ending off the book. I know. I know. Wow. <laughs> yeah. They well, made me because they thought that the idea that Madonna was the bad guy was the blank mm-hmm. was a big surprise. I think people probably knew it in the credits. Right. Yeah, but, it wasn't but, much of a surprise. No. And so. They had me write a whodunit that did not reveal whodunit. And then it's my best selling book. I I have a connection with Dick Tracy. (laughs) (laughs) What is that, Gil? I I was up for the part of Mumbles. And of course, they were talking to me like, oh, this is it. You're the only person we could see doing this role. And then somewhere along the way, uh, they said, they're not going with you. And I said, who are they going with? And they said, Dustin Hoffman. So like <laughs> me and Dustin Hoffman were running neck and neck for this one. <laughs> it's like the only way I could be mentioned in the same sentence with Dustin Hoffman is 
I've seen Gilbert Gottfried's acting, and he's no Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> so you didn't get Dick Tracy, and you didn't get the experts. Yes. <laughs> Gilbert, have you ever been in a movie? <laughs> <laughs> what did, did Beatty call you on the phone, Max? There's a, there's a well, story no. there too. Well, first I I should mention that I was at a junket for down there in in, yeah. in Disney World, and Dustin Hoffman was standing right next to me. I personally, as an SNL fan, I w- had wished it was Gilbert Gottfried, almost Gilbert, <laughs> but it was it was uh, it was it was Hoffman, and I I told him I said, well, I put Melbles in the strip. Because I was putting all the stuff from the movie in the strip, and it was I had a, the the newspaper there, and he read me my daily strip as mumbles, and you told me he was doing Robert Evans. I, I heard I heard that I heard that he had and we'll 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 double check that that but he was working some of Robert Evans into that portrayal. He definitely played Robert Evans in um, Wag the Dog. Wag the yeah. Well, when I when I, the the Beatty thing is, as we were getting ready to go into the theater, he stopped me and he said, "I've been wanting to talk to you." And I said, "Really?" He says, "You're going to get a phone call from me. Don't be surprised when the phone rings." I've been sitting by this fucking phone <laughs> so, <laughs> since 1990. Warren Beatty has not called. No. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question from a from a uh, from a fan on that subject. Will Harris, uh, a listener, uh, Max, which classic Dick Tracy villain did you most enjoy reviving for the strip? Well, I actually did for the strip. Uh, we did Pruneface. Uh huh. We did Pruneface. He had uh, he had been frozen to death back in the '40s, and we thawed him out. And I did a lot of jokes like p- him being mistaken for Ronald Reagan, and you know stuff like that. And it was. Because I, I like to do uh, I like to do the humor stuff, guys. You know. Here's here's one for you, Dave. Uh, Jeffrey Westoff. How does Dave feel about that Bob and Doug statue in Edmonton? Is it surreal for him? Has he seen it in well, person? I don't know. I mean, tonight I heard that Henry Winkler has a statue. He does. Yeah, that that <laughs> pisses me off because I thought Rick and I were the only ones who had statues. In the in the comedy world, and now Winkler's got one. So now I feel like ah, they can go ahead and take it down. I feel like you know <laughs> Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee, take my statue down. Who cares? And, oh, and Dave, Dave, have you seen the infamous original statue of Lucille Ball? No. Oh, we gotta wow. send it to you. Oh, it it is uh, from a monster movie this thing <laughs> well we if it was and, old and, lucy and, uh, then it was faithfully rendered <laughs> <laughs> uh, max it, when they i was watching those scenes there's a lot of guest stars working with al pacino and i always wondered were they in the same room together well, I wasn't on the set, but I think they were. Uh, Pacino was at the, I believe Pacino was at the junket, so everybody was interacting. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that rumor about what is it? Uh, what What is the Michael Mann movie that uh, De Niro oh, heat, and Heat? Heat. Yeah. yeah. They heat. were together. There's like one scene they're allegedly together, but you never see them in the same shot. The restaurant right. scene, right? 
Yeah. Yes, uh, Kate, Kate Mantellini's, I think, the old restaurant in uh, yeah. Beverly Hills. Yeah, you, you see a shot of De Niro, then a shot of Pacino, never together. That's a great movie, though. I it really say. is. It, he's a hell of a director. Here's another one for you, Dave, uh, from David West. Would Dave, by chance, have any good Rowan Atkinson or John Cleese tales to tell? Here's a John Cleese story. Because you were in Rat so, Race with him. We were in Rat Race, and we that I became friends with him. I played his lawyer. And so they were flying us home from Calgary. We shot in Calgary, shot in Las Vegas, and we shot in L.A. So they were flying us home from Calgary, and they had John and I in the same car and on the same plane. And so when we get to the airport, it was a morning flight. They had one of those airport concierge people meet us, that, you know, to help incompetent actors find their airplane. And uh, she made the mistake of saying to Cleese, uh, can I get you anything? And Cleese looks at her and he goes, yes, I'd like to have a proper English breakfast before I fly. And she said, what, what? excuse me? He says, you do know what a proper English breakfast is, don't you? I mean, you know, uh, tea, eggs, bacon, toast, tea, marmalade, a proper English breakfast. And she said, well, I mean, I, I think the only thing open is maybe Jack in the Box. He said, you mean to tell me in a city of this size, Calgary, Alberta, Canada, 860,000 people, that you can't find a proper English breakfast at the major airport in that city? That's not acceptable. She runs off. And I looked at John and I said, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why did you do that to her? He said, I don't know. She seemed like she wanted to have something to do. <laughs> he would he would play with people like that. Hilarious. Oh, Hilarious. Uh, uh, now, Dave, are you aware of the Quincy Jones accusation of the uh, sexual encounters between Marlon Brando and Richard Pryor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. Yeah. It's uh, pretty damn shocking. <laughs> yeah, he said Brando and Pryor would get coked up and and fuck each other. With Dave I in the know. car. Yeah. <laughs> David was there being being towed. <laughs> and while and while Brando was fucking Pryor, uh, he would Brando would be on bottom saying. Hey, you know that season of Saturday Night Live with Bill? <laughs> We're a small but hearty group, Gilbert. I'm 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 losing control of this show, so we're gonna we're gonna go to a Gilbert impression. Now, Max, Max, reading about how uh, uh, Maltese Falcon was an uh, an inspiration, I think for Hell yeah. for Heller. Right. That's right. Yeah, the Hell your Heller series. By the way, the film is 80 this year. Ah, uh, well, the specific inspiration for me, the Nate Heller books are historically, uh, they're, they're privatized stories, but they're all about historical crimes, usually unsolved mm -hmm, ones. So I've mm -hmm. done, you know, I've done things like the Lindbergh kidnapping and the assassination of Huey Long and, and so on. Well, what inspired it was I was teaching the Maltese Falcon, and I looked at the Indicia page, and it said it was copyright 1929. And I thought, oh, 1929—that's the—that's the, that's the St. Valentine's Day massacre. 
That means Al Capone and, and uh, you know, Sam Spade were contemporaries, essentially. So then I thought, oh, well, then I could do, I don't have to do period private eye. I can actually actually put the private eye in history. And so that, that was the inspiration. But one time, one of the audiobooks, some guy did Bogart for the whole six hours. Wow. And it was so unintentionally hilarious <laughs> that I was given I was given six copies of it, and I very carefully chose my you know my six best friends. I could have it could have been enemies, but I I gave it to my six best friends and said, "This is how it you know if, if you haven't been listening you know if you haven't read my stuff, this will give you a chance to kind of catch up." And I it was a hit. It was a big, big hit. Get, I when he said that. he was he was shitting on the couch. Unbelievable. <laughs> six hours of Bogart. <laughs> there was a TV movie about Bogart and Bacall. And I forget the actor who played Bogart, but I guess he wanted to avoid being like a nightclub comic imitation of Bogart. So he completely avoided sounding like Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> and, and it's like in the movie, he's like, uh, hey, I'm uh, filming Casablanca now. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Well, they had they had David Soul play play uh, play bogey or play, I guess he played Rick yeah. Blaine in a Casa in a Casa. He played his character in a Casablanca. Gilbert, give him a little Joel Cairo. These boys. Oh, oh. No, it's you who bundled it. You, it's your stupid attempt to buy it. Kevin found out how valuable it was. No wonder we had such an easy time getting it. You idiot! You bloated fathead! <laughs> There's a big call for that today. <laughs> My favorite line in Casablanca that I always thought if I had to make a trailer for the movie, it would just be that line. And that's where he's going to turn in Wilma, who was uh, Elijah Cook Jr. He's going to turn them in as the fall guy. And and Sidney Greenstreet says, I love Wilma like, I, uh, like a son. But if you lose a son, it's possible to have another. But there's only one, Maltese Falcon. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Did you guys expect to get Sydney Green Street tonight? <laughs> no, you could do that all night long, as far as I'm concerned. But you know, you know, there is a 1931 film that is not bad. Sure, there are two, two. Uh, uh, right, and we've Falcons. talked about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one with Betty Davis is really bad. Um, it's, it's like it's not the Falcon. It's some kind of goat horn or something, and. The uh, will the 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 Sydney Green Street part is played by a woman, Allison Skipworth. It's pretty bad. She has one of the best lines. Yeah, there's one that I think it's Ricardo Cortez. Yeah, that's the first one. Who was who was a Jew? Ricardo Cortez. <laughs> it, it, he was a Jewish boy named I think his name was Artie Krantz. And he was a good-looking Jewish boy. And they said, you know what's popular now? Like. Uh, Rudolph Valentino and now Latin lovers, and they changed his name to Ricardo Cortez. <laughs> what were you going to say, Dave? I can't remember that. <laughs> oh, something off Betty Davis. Oh, I, I know. Oh, Betty had the, I thought the best line. 
that somebody was, uh, a young actress was asking her for advice. Can you give me some advice on the business? And she says, yeah, take Fountain. <laughs> Which I thought was a great joke. If you know L.A. streets at all, or Hollywood streets, that's a good joke. Tell you, I live in Iowa and I got it. There you go. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. I uh, heard a story about Bob Hope when he do those USO tours. You know, they always have some sexy actress or model, you know, Raquel Welch, yeah. Joey Heatherton. And, well, first of all, I'll give you a chance to do this line. I'm sure you know it. How would he introduce every sex symbol to the troops? He goes, ladies and gentlemen, here's a gal, a gal that you're going to love. You, you're going to... Oh, you're going to want a little piece of this action. I tell you right now, I'm not exactly sure. Was that, was that where you were, no, what no, you were thinking there of? There was a line he used to do. He'd say to the troops, and he'd go, just want you boys to see what you're fighting for. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, I heard Bob Hope, if, if the actress wouldn't fuck him, the sexy actress, he threatened to leave them in the jungles of Vietnam. <laughs> that they'd all leave, they'd pack up and leave her there. If and they, they deserved it. They really did. <laughs> I heard that. I heard that, too. I ended up having a, uh, I spent a time with his writers um, because they liked my impersonation of Bob. And, you know, I would go out for dinner with them and go out for lunch with them and so I heard a lot of stories about hope that aren't in the sort of public uh, sort of uh, parlance or whatever, you know. And, and and I started to get confused as to what's true, what's real, what's rumor, and what's actually stuff that his writers told me because they were there, you know. I I heard a story. That, you know, Bob Hope would think nothing of calling his writers at three o'clock in the morning. That's true. Yeah. Yes. And going, yeah, I need a Nixon going to China thing. And they'd have to get up and write. And I heard a, there was one story that a writer was in bed with his wife. And late at night, the phone rang. And, and the writer said to his wife, just you answer. If it's Bob, I'm not here. And she answers the phone. Sure enough, it's Bob Hope. And he goes, yeah, I want to talk to Irv. And she says, oh, um, he's not here, Bob. And he goes, well, you, you know where he is? And she goes, uh, well, actually, Bob, when he was leaving, he told me he was going to your house. And immediately, Bob Hope goes, Ah, gee, I'm sorry. There he is now. He just walked in. <laughs> yeah, he, he, that's sort of like that's sort of like the hound. The hound's code. Bob was a hound, and he believed that he had to protect all other hounds. You know, oh, that's but, fantastic. But but you know, on the story of him calling his writers at three, four in the morning, or. There was always the communication in the early days that was a difficult thing. How does he get the material? You know, does somebody hand write it down? Jeff Barron, who was one of his writers, told me this, that when Hope first saw the fax machine, he said, what's that? 
He said, well, that's a fax machine. What does that do? He said, well, you, you, you know, you can put a script in it and you can use the telephone line to, he said, get out. You can do that with that? He says, I want, I want every one of my writers to have one of those and I want one for myself at the house. And that was it. And it became the bane of the writers that he could get them and they couldn't say, oh, uh, we put it in the mail or you didn't get it yet. You know, because it was like <laughs> Bob was standing over his fax machine waiting for the jokes to come. Now, somebody told me, I hope it's true, uh, that like Hope and Crosby were on tour with this girl singer. And the girl singer had a very anglicized name, but she was Jewish. And she said they were constantly making anti-Semitic remarks. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, first of all, nobody was politically correct back then. And so, you know, you do Polak jokes, you do this, you do that. You know, the, the, there was no no rules or anything like it. But I've heard stuff like that. But, you know, all of Hope's writers were Jewish and Hope really did love his writers. I know there's stories about him throwing the check off the balcony, but I talked to a couple of writers that were there for that, and they just, no, nah, no, nah, that was a joke. He, we, we didn't grovel for our money. He paid us well and treated us well because he knew that without his writers, he was nothing. And, you know, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know where the line in the sand is. I, I think that if you were a woman and you had a good body and Hope got a chance to get close to you, watch out. But, <laughs> but if you were Italian or if you were Jewish or whatever, but if you were funny and you could write jokes for him, he'd pay you and he was your buddy. Hey, Frank, I, I want to circle around just for a minute sure. because uh, you were talking about Dave not doing the young Bob Hope, but he, he certainly could do the young Bob Hope. And like Mad Magazine, SCTV did a classic, classic sketch uh, on Fantasy Island. Uh-huh. And, and that's really, I think, was a breakthrough sketch, as, as Dave has mentioned, for SCTV because it did some ambitious things that uh, hadn't well, been it was, done. Well, it was multi-layered. And, and up to that time, you know, on, even on show shows and some of the comedy shows that came before us, I'd never seen a show that started out as a parody of Fantasy Island and then it went to Casablanca and then, it, you know, and then it went to... Wizard of Oz. It had all these other movies sort of beat into one concept. And when Joe Flaherty and I wrote that, and when we were done with the script, we thought nobody in Hollywood would ever let us shoot this, but we got to shoot it because this is pretty cool. <laughs> and there was great another sketch. great sketch uh, with Rick Moranis called Play It Again, Bob. So oh, wonderful. Yeah. Classic. Wonderful. Well, Rick and I actually improvised most of that into a tape recorder, <laughs> into one of those little handheld tape recorders. And he was so good at Woody. And I was way better at channeling Bob back then than I am now. And I was talking to Paul Flaherty, Joe's brother, who about, about a, a month ago, who reminded me, he said that I was like laying on a couch with a newspaper over my face, channeling Bob Hope as, as if he was dead. And they said it was hysterically funny and they wished that they could have taped it. And I wish I could have taped it too. 
because, you know, I don't remember doing it. And I don't remember. All I remember is that I had a a more of an ease of doing him than I do now. Well, because I'm old now. And, <laughs> and, and back then, you know, and Moranis was so fast. God, he was just like, you know, he could do Woody and he could do references. And it was amazing. It's a wonderful sketch. So is the one that Max brought up, the Fantasy Island. And it's, as an excuse, we'll have Gilbert do a little of his Hervé Villachez. Go ahead, Gil. Oh, yes. I do Hervé Villachez in Scent of a Woman. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, your name is Daphne. I could tell because you use Chanel number five and you have a southern accent. (laughs) (laughs) that's how we're gonna get pacino on the show gil (laughs) max do you want to talk about you uh you wrote down jack webb when i asked you some fun things you'd like to talk about Uh, anything about jack webb or do you want to tell us about meeting raymond burr at his house I want to hear Raymond Burr. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I, I didn't actually meet Raymond Burr at his house. It was He was doing the Perry Mason TV movies ah, I gotcha. in Denver, and he lived in an apartment in a hotel that was half hotel and half residential. I stand corrected. And very close, though. He was living there. And at least during the making of, uh, you know, these movies, he made, a, he made about four a year, I think. And um, he was he wanted to do a book. And so I got to I got to meet him. But and he was a wonderful guy. I mean, he was and I talked to him about anybody like Jack Webb. I talked to him about I believe he and Jack Webb had a falling out because, oh, he said, yeah, he said Jack Webb's a very bad man. And he, he was somebody who was in all of Jack Webb's early stuff. So I have a suspe- I don't know what it was, but I still love Jack Webb because he really invented modern television. I mean. He was the all those radio people tried to cart what they did over to TV and only Webb and I would argue Jack Benny were able to just say, we'll do it on TV and it'll work. Almost nothing else worked. Uh, but but Webb was a, a kind of an amazing filmmaker. I heard a wonderful story about him and uh, Stephen Cannell, where Cannell was writing, I think, um uh, what is what's 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 the uh, guys it's that it's it's that picture back there the the uh you know the TV show about the, the two cops driving around aimlessly Adam in. 12 yeah Adam 12 could I I frozen that two cops driving around aimlessly that's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> they're not on calls they're just driving around aimlessly <laughs> that's how I got from it uh but but uh Cannell was writing it with him, and Cannell would work at like Webb's in Webb's studi- study, and they'd work all all morning. And then about eleven thirty, Webb would get furious with him over something, and just absolutely tear him a new asshole. And then they'd go out, they, they'd leave and go for lunch, and then they come not together. And then he'd come back after lunch, and Webb would be like, "Well, let's get going. Let's let's start now. Everything's fine." Completely forgotten. Wow. Every day he tore him a new asshole. <laughs> this guy's a sociopath. Before lunch. <laughs> that does sound like it, it does. <laughs> I heard Raymond Burr. It was all what he wanted to do with Ironside. He was originally <laughs> supposed to be a regular detective, but he didn't want to stand. 
around all day. So they wrote, they made up this story that he was shot and he's in a wheelchair. And so not only did he sit through all those episodes, but he wanted all of his dialogue up on cue cards. That's true. How about that? And you remember really good uh, at it. Remember William Conrad in Canon? Sure. Yeah. Quinn Martin. 90% of his shots are sitting in his car. He was heavy and he just, you could tell he just didn't walk. But there would be long dialogue scenes with was shooting down at him in his car and up at the person talking to him. And I remember watching that laughing and going, uh, I got a parody that one day. But I didn't. I wish I had. <laughs> Max, when you went to Burr's house, did he answer the door? Did you tell me he, he, or well, yeah. the, he where he was staying? He was wearing, what, a, rail, a, a railroad uniform? Well, I know, a you know, model I go train? There. I was always, you know, I always loved Perry Mason, and I, I was very excited about meeting Raymond Burr. But it's a little intimidating, so I knock on the door, and the door opens, and there he stands, not sitting, Gilbert. Yeah. He was standing. <laughs> One of its and, rare, rare uh, standing <laughs> Totally dressed as a railroad engineer <laughs> with a hat. With a hat. Well, I love Why? And I, and I step in, and he, he welcomes me in, and he's got model train stuff all over his apartment, going from one room to another, incredibly elaborate. And he and he had a little oil can. <laughs> and and that, was what, that was a hobby of his. Uh, I love that he put the uniform on. He was insane then. I mean, that, that, there can't be any other reason for that. You, I mean, it's one thing to have model trains, but to dress up in the uniform and have an oil can, that's nuts. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, Dave, I know you and I keep it to one room. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. One room of model trains. I, that's all we need. I love those clumsy scenes in Godzilla where they wanted to Americanize it. So they have, they put in Raymond Burr in his hotel room, yes. looking out the window going, you know, and now Godzilla is uh, tearing apart a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he went back and shot, the, shot uh, uh, another Godzilla movie when it was like the 30th anniversary of Godzilla or something. And they made another movie and they brought him back. To do exactly the same thing. <laughs> and you could tell it was like shot in like an hour. All of his scenes. <laughs> but there's there's a dream come true for Burr. Because there he is standing, looking out a window, commenting on a miniature set with H.O. Gage Railways. <laughs> and it's just watching all those trains getting torn apart by a big rubber monster. What a dream come true for that man. Absolutely. <laughs> It's scale, but there's lots of toy trains. <laughs> <laughs> we will we will come back to the many lives of Jimmy Layton in just a second as we wind down. But Dave, uh, you and I were discussing your old friend Tom Poston. Uh, yeah, his hundredth birthday. I guess it's a centenary. Uh, uh, just yeah. passed just passed last week, and he was a guy that you had a lot of fondness for. And uh, I love uh, him. A comedy legend, as far as we're concerned. So this is a story that I told at his funeral. And I probably shouldn't have, but I did anyway. And Suzanne Plachette, he was married to her mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, it was funny because they both got together. They had had an affair in the 50s when they were doing a Broadway show. Then they married other people. She was with Troy Donahue and he married somebody else. And then their spouses died. And then they get back together when they're in their 70s or Sweet. something. You know. 
and it was wonderful. And, you know, um, I remember when he got, uh, we went out for dinner, my wife and I went out for dinner with Tom and Suzanne, and um, she said, uh, we're going to get married. And we said, oh, great, congratulations, how did that happen? And she said to Tom, I'm not, she had quite a mouth on her. She said, I'm not getting, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fuck you unless you give me a rock. And I mean a big fucking rock. So Tom went out (laughs) and had a piece of gravel mounted by a jeweler on an expensive setting and put in a little box. And he took her out to dinner and got down on one knee and gave her this. And we said, and he gave you like a, a rock like you asked for. She said, yeah. And I said, so what happened? She said, well, I fucked him that night. (laughs) <laughs> and what's the hope story where you asked tom his advice when you were you told me that one on the phone were well you, i did a roast for hope and this is when he's so old that he had to be carried around he was very frail at this point and it was at the beverly hilton hotel and i was on a dais with You'll love this, Gilbert. I'm not a stand-up. I'm like, Chevy, you know, I don't do stand-up, but I can write a, a thing and then perform it, but I'm not a stand-up. So I'm on the dais with Sid Caesar, Norm Crosby, Phyllis Diller, Connie Stevens, just for fun, and uh, Sid Caesar, I think. Did I ever mention him? Yeah. Anyway, it was like, and Dave Thomas. And so I wrote a joke that I thought would be a funny way to open it. And I tried on posting because it was when I was doing Grace Under Fire with Tom. I tried on him in the afternoon. He said, no. He said, that's a long drive to no payoff. It ain't going to work. That crowd will not like it. So Tom is sitting in the audience and I do this joke. And here's the joke. I'm out there and I say, you know, I first met Bob in 1942. And we did some of those uh, shows together out in the... uh, out in the South Pacific, you know, with Francis Langford and Jerry Colonna. And then in 1947, 48, we did the Pepsodent show on NBC. And then, and then in 1950, when we were doing the Frigidaire show, the first television show, Bob and I went to Switzerland because Bob wanted to go to the La Prairie Clinic for uh, their youth program. They were, like, giving lamb fetish injections to people to help them stay young. <laughs> and, and I said, now, now there were two programs that you could do. There was the full immersion and there was the thrift pack. And I looked at Bob and I said, Bob, just think how much better you'd look today if you'd gone for the extra bucks and done the full immersion. <laughs> and I looked at, I, and I, I'm not kidding you. There's all these people out there at the Beverly Hilton and I get nothing. I'm getting not even a snicker. And I look at Tom Post and he's sitting in the front and he's just shaking his head. Told you. <laughs> Told you. Too far, to, funny. Too, too far to drive for that payoff. It's a, it's a <laughs> I, funny I one. heard a Bob Hope story. This is when he was like, you know, like, uh, you know, living in outer space. Uh, he was way past <laughs> appearing in public. And they were honoring him, and he was sitting there the whole time, propped up in the chair. And and then one guy goes, hey, how about give Bob a chance to say something? And Dolores 
is trying to give them the like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. <laughs> and one of them shoves a mic in Bob Hope's face and says, Bob, what do you have to say? And he says, decaf. <laughs> oh god <laughs> oh i want to go back quickly to the many lives of jimmy layton which is yeah. out now it's out now let's hear what we're here to plug actually it's it's out now right gentlemen you can get it on uh, on amazon and wherever fine books are sold actually you have to get it from amazon oh it's it's exclusive it's exclusive on kindle and and print so, uh, you know, we're trying to get we're trying to get William Shatner up for a longer amount of time in space. You got to get it down while supplies last. Yes. Get it. Get your order in. It's eight eight dollars and ninety nine cents and three ninety nine for the Kindle. This is price to move. Price to sell. <laughs> it's a story about uh, what a multiverse or, or parallel lives, parallel universes. Am I am I am I botching this totally? A little bit. It's called the many worlds interpretation. It is one of the sort of multiverse theories, but here's the quick thing on it. It's by this, it's a, a theory that came up that a physicist from Princeton named Hugh Everett III came up with. And his concept was that for every binary choice in life where you could go left or right at an intersection, uh, so you go left, that's the realized choice. His theory was that the right turn, the unrealized choice, was still existed, that it was a reality and all the choices that branched off from that also existed. So, oh, by the way, did I mention that I left comedy behind when yes. I was doing this? Okay. <laughs> well, you've been, was, you've been writing for Bones and The Blacklist and yeah, you, you, you've given uh, a, a second career. When I start to explain quantum stuff as best I can and I really don't understand it, I'm so far from comedy that I can see myself disappearing over the horizon. So, it took me two months to explain quantum physics to this guy. Which which one of you doesn't do the science? It's you, Max, right? I yeah. don't do any of the science. <laughs> yeah. I don't even do the math. Yeah. And we should say you guys have not met physically. You wrote this whole thing over Zoom and the telephone, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the fax machine, and Bob's old fax machine. In our <laughs> chairs, just like Raymond Burr. <laughs> With cue cards. <laughs> it was a COVID novel. Yeah. I yeah. can't wait to read it, and thank you, Dave, for sending it to me. If I wasn't working 60-hour weeks, I would have polished it off by now. Dave, before we go, I asked you about uh, a short list of, uh, of, uh, of things you might want to talk about. You brought up the David Steinberg show, which you did with Marty. And you said you work with Rip Taylor, Uncle Milty, uh, James Coco, and Ethel Merman. So anything there that you might want to favor us with? Ethel Merman looked like a lollipop. There was this gigantic <laughs> head and a tiny little body that just kind of kind of hung helplessly below it. And the fact that she could actually walk around amazed me. She was diminutive and and had this really you know her voice. There's no business like show I mean, <laughs> I can't do Ethel Merman, but my God, it was amazing to be working with her because she was from a whole different era of showbiz than I was. I was just, that was my first TV show. And uh, we got in trouble on that show. Marty Short was on it, Joe yep. Flaherty and John Candy and I, because 
During one of the breaks, everyone left the studio to go to someplace to eat, and we were playing a game of tag football in the set. And John Candy tackled Marty and knocked him into this, like there were these mylar columns, and they just went down like dominoes, just lights bursting. And we all ran out of the studio like bad kids and hid in our dressing rooms. They knew it was us, but we never admitted to it. But then they put, as punishment, the next week we came in, we each had our own dressing room the first week. The next week they put Joe and John Candy in a dressing room and Marty and I in a dressing room. And uh, then... The following week, they put all four of us in this tiny dressing room, <laughs> and then there was an, a shared bathroom with the guest star that week. And the guest star, and they're, okay, this is going to sound like it's not a, this is an actual true story. The guest star this week was Senior Wences. And I, <laughs> I opened the bathroom door to take a leak, and he's in there sitting down. And I go, oh, I'm sorry. And I close the door. And from behind the closed door, I hear, it's all right. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Me and Senior Wences. <laughs> this is the last question from a fan, Dave. Uh, I think you'll get a kick out of this one. From Sean Patrick Little. I must hear Dave's thoughts about the lasting, enduring impact of the McKenzie brothers. How does he explain it? I don't and can't. I mean, you know, maybe it's this. America is a country that's very rich with icons. You know, you got Superman, you got George Washington, Abe Lincoln, Coca-Cola. There's so many icons that people associate with America. And there are relatively few icons that people associate with Canada. I mean, hockey, a beaver, the maple leaf. And then you're kind of running out of it. Maybe a Mountie. You're running out of them by then. So these two kind of toque-wearing, uh, parka-clad guys that drank beer that look kind of like Muppets, non-threatening and very kind of like savant in their own little way. Maybe that's why. I don't know. But, I mean, that's the best theory I can come up with. I hope this satisfies that inquisitive viewer, listener. And, and wasn't that created as like a snide comment on like... There was yeah. some kind of law. No, it was uh, Canadian content. The CBC, in the third season, global TV in Canada dropped us, and we went to the CBC and some isolated markets in the U.S. And um, the U.S. version had two minutes more commercials. So we had to come up with two minutes more programming time for the Canadian version. And the CBC said, we would like that two minutes to be distinctively Canadian. And we said, I remember Rick <laughs> and I said, to, what do you want us to do? Put up a map of Canada, sit in front of it wearing toques and parkas and drink beer? Is that Canadian enough for you? And they said, yeah. <laughs> they said, yeah, that would be great. So that's what we did. And <laughs> a legend was born from humble beginnings. Yeah. Last question yeah. for Max. Ray Garton. Uh, I am a big Max Allen Collins Fan, among my favorites are his historical disaster mysteries, like the uh, War of the Worlds murder and the Titanic murders. Uh, is uh, Max planning to do any more of these? No, I'm not. Um, all of my books that are disasters now, they're not intended to be disasters. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
I, I'm going to completely dodge the question and and mention that one of the things about the book that Dave and I did together yeah. is that we did. There's the science fiction aspect of it, which is more like is some like Groundhog's Day in terms of moving somebody moving. It's, it's, it's contemporary. We're not on a spaceship, okay? But we also have a crime story. Mm-hmm. I I think Dave and I decided that because that's what I'm associated with, having my name on it, maybe we ought to throw a bone to my to my readers. And so we came up with two stories. So the, you bounce back and forth, just as he's bouncing, Jimmy's bouncing through various lives. We bounce back and forth between Jimmy's travels and this investigation by two kind of unlikely paired detectives who are trying to solve the, the mystery of who shot Jimmy Layton because Jimmy was shot when he was sent off on this on his travels. And I think you've also answered another question with your thoughtful answer, none of which I've been able to give on this show. Who wrote the book? <laughs> It just seems like you wrote it, Max, and I was along for the ride. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. I enjoyed the ride. Thank you very Absolutely much. Thank you. Not true. There's not a word in that book that he and I didn't wrestle to the mat over. Yeah. Well, 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 well you, sound- you, you envisioned it as a TV series originally, did you not? Yeah, I did. And then, and then I pitched it to a couple of executives, and I saw them glaze over and their eyes roll back, and I thought, okay, I better, I better not even think about trying to sell this as a TV. So then I started writing it as a book and I got a couple of chapters and I never would have got this finished if it hadn't been for Max. I never would have done it. I have so many unfinished things. It's ridiculous. That's, that's very generous of him, but we, we really had a, I, I think we had a great time on this. Uh, to, yeah, he we really did. is an idol. He is an idol of mine. In fact, for a long time, uh, I used to have the, I used to have the action figures of Bob and Doug over here until until we kept bumping into it and, and our dog kept eating the, the beer bottles and it got dangerous <laughs> because we thought our dog might die eating the plastic beer bottles. And so we put we put Bob and Doug in, a you know, in plastic, but uh, they really were for probably five, six, ten years. They were in my office. Here's what I got to say to you, buddy. If you can't give a dog the Heimlich maneuver, you don't deserve to have one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I didn't know if we'd be able to capture what our working relationship is like. I think you have. I think think we just have. (laughs) I think you have. I think we just have. I'm glad you guys found each other. I really am. We are too. And, and, you know, I, I do too. we didn't even get into the mysteries. You know, Gilbert and I were talking about your body of work, Max, on the phone, and that you've written about the Black Dahlia, not only the Titanic and the Hindenburg, but the Black Dahlia and the assassination of Huey Long and and uh, and the Lindbergh kidnapping. And we'll we'll have you guys back and, and talk. And, you know, Dave is a JFK assassination buff and an RFK assassination well, and buff. Well, I, I did two Kennedy That's right. assassination books, and I think Dave has read, read them. And I'm going to be doing another um, – the next book I'm going to be doing is going to have to do with uh, with Kennedy, Robert Kennedy. Going to move on oh, to that. That that leads me to another question for both you and Dave. What do you think of uh, uh, Sirhan Sirhan being paroled? Okay, Paul Schrade, who was shot standing beside him, is 90 now. Mm-hmm. He's a guy that I've met and spent time with talking to him about this. He was in the room. He got shot, and he has investigated, and he's one of the people trying to get Serhan Serhan paroled. 
Because although, and he maintains this really vehemently, although Siren Siren shot at Kennedy, Siren Siren did not kill Kennedy. RFK was shot with a bullet close to the back of his head, and he never turned around and presented the back of his head to Siren Siren once. Siren Siren was at least three feet away at all times. All the witnesses were able to verify that. And Thomas Noguchi, the coroner, said the powder burns that were in the back in the in the fatal wound at the back of the head indicated that the gun was either pressed directly against the head or about an inch away. And at no point was he close to that. So th- there's a guy who was in the room. I've been in that room at the Ambassador Hotel, the kitchen where he was mm-hmm. shot. It's a tiny, mm-hmm. it's a tiny little room. But I- I'll tell you, after spending an afternoon with this guy Paul Schrade, he he made me believe absolutely that this was a classic hit with the loud guy in the front, bang, 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 ah, I'll kill you, I'll kill you, and the real insurance guy in the back. Nailing him from behind. Does the name Thane Caesar mean anything to you? It means a lot to me because he yeah. was the security guard standing behind him. And guess what? Thane Caesar carried an Ivor Johnson 22 as his security guard gun. Not a Colt 38 like all other security guards. He carried an assassin gun with a low report. That's exactly the kind of gun that Saren Saren was using. So kind of a coincidence that they both had the same guns. Come on. Yeah, I'm going case. to be doing. I'm going to do be doing Nate Heller on that, and I'll probably be oh, leaning great. on Dave. Uh, and, and so you're partic- saying he was shot by Sid Caesar? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> he was, Spoiler alert! He was doing so many dialects at the time, Gilbert. That- <laughs> here's Paul. Sh- here's Paul Schrade's card. Paul Schrade, not to be confused and- with Paul Schrader. Wow, look at that. That's right. And too many bullets. Too many bullets. That's going to be the name of one of these Heller books. I love it. Because there were too many bullets in the room. 13 out of an eight shotgun. Give me a fucking break. We'll have you guys back just to explore these mysteries. Because Gilbert Gilbert and I want to know about the Black Dahlia, and we want your take on the Lindbergh kidnapping and all of these other things. Because these, these are the things we talk about on the phone when we're not talking about Sid Caesar and 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 Howard Morris and uh, John MacGyver, <laughs> Gilbert, I, I, I'm sorry, Gilbert, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the Black Dahlia is deceased <laughs> and Jewish, Gilbert. Really? <laughs> no, no. Oh God, I I really wanted that. <laughs> Do you guys know the character actor John MacGyver? Sure. Okay, we're yeah. gonna have, we're gonna have Gil Gil take you out. He is the only. How many people on the earth? About a couple of billion on the all, all, entire earth, yeah, eight, eight billion. Gilbert is the only person of eight billion that does a John MacGyver impersonation. Oh, and you're about to hear it. Everything in this company <laughs> must be run according to schedule. This company is a tight ship, and I am the captain of the ship. We will have no slackers here, you understand? No slackers at all. Oh, I love that show where you made those 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 crazy inventions. That was wonderful. <laughs> he had a sitcom called, uh, I think, Many Happy Returns. 
Yeah. It was a return department and a department store. Well, the connection is he was in the he was in the Manchurian Candidate. Very good. Yes, indeed. And he was with Jerry Lewis in who's I think in who's minding the store. He was the head of the department store. I want to sit down with you one day, Gilbert, and do see if we can come up with the most obscure impressions in the world. Because <laughs> I think you're way ahead of me, but I would like to try to catch up. You did, you did some obscure ones, Dave. I did. I don't think anybody did Boy George. <laughs> no. Other than you. In a boxing ring. Yeah. Do you ever get any blowback from Liberace, pardon the expression, or yes. or, uh, or Richard <laughs> Richard Harris or any of those people from those impressions? Well, I got screamed at by uh, Seymour Heller, uh, who called me years ago because he saw that sketch of uh, Liberace Christmas special that I did where it's the Anderson sleigh ride. And for the whip crack... We would cut back, and two sleeveless guys, muscle guys in Santa costumes, were bow whipping Liberace's back, and 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 I was just going, ha ah, ah. ha. So my the geniuses at CAA that were rapping me at that time, they were doing a, a movie about his life, and I think Victor Garber ended up playing him. Wow! So they sent this tape to. Seymour Heller, and he called me up and he just starts screaming at me, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are doing something like this? So this tasteful thing about Lee, you you, you, you have to pull this down. You can't put this. I said, Jesus Christ, this was on TV 20 years ago. I can't pull it down. <laughs> it's already aired. And I said, listen, I said, I didn't send that tape to you. I'm not responsible. Talk to the agents. Talk to the geniuses that rep me and rep you, and then try to figure out why you got it. That is hilarious. Okay, so you did. The answer is yes. I guess it was Billy Barty's birthday recently, and they showed a clip on the Internet of Billy Barty as Liberace. Oh, get out. (laughs) Yeah, we'll, we'll send, we'll send it to you, Dave. With a tiny piano in front okay. of him. And, and he's the white wig, and he did a very good Liberace imitation. Jesus. Wow. That's funny. Let's, let's shout out some people. Our friend John Murray, who helped us uh, immeasurably here, set this up with the audio and get everybody straightened out. And Max's son, Nathan. John. Who was Johnny on the spot. Nathan. We thank him. Uh, a shout out to Joe McGinty, our, our pal, the musician who was listening to this episode and visiting Gilbert in Florida. Joe. And and uh, and a shout out to Max for loving two films that I love that, that are underloved, and that is Blake Edwards' The Great Race uh, and, the, and the Fred McMurray comedy Murder, he says. Fantastic movies. Yes, two, two movies strongly recommended. And nobody really knows about Murder, he says. That's, that's no. fl- flying under the radar. That's one of the greatest. It really is one of the funniest movies. What, Marjorie Maine. Yep. But McMurray was really very underrated as a comic actor. Supposedly the cheapest man in Hollywood, Fred McMurray. I uh, heard that. Until heard Gilbert that. showed up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and Fred McMurray, another guy with a fucking great deal. When he did My Three Sons, oh, yeah. they would yeah. shoot all of his scenes like in a day and they'd scatter them through the whole season. Yep. I heard that story, too. And you know where he's buried? 
Where? Underneath John Candy. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. What? Really? Fred? Yeah, down at uh, Forest Lawn here in L.A. And uh, the crypt, Fred McMurray is under John. John wow. Candy is above Fred. Jeez. Wow. Wow. John Candy. Greatly missed. Uh, yeah. The book is The Many Lives of Jimmy Layton, folks. Pick it up. The first of many, probably, collaborations between Dave Thomas and the great Max Allen Collins. Uh, do you want to take us out on a little bit of Bob Hope saying goodbye, Dave? <laughs> Am I putting you on the spot? No, not at all. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. You know, this show is 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 kind of special to all of us because it's hosted by a guy who's a very close and dear friend and, and, and one of the greatest comics ever. Ladies and gentlemen, special thanks goes to Gilbert Gottfried. And and, and I want to thank you all and, and drive home, drive safe. Remember, ladies and gentlemen... Your heart and lungs are important, but don't forget about your glands. They get you everywhere. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay, Gil, you can sign off, I guess. Let's say goodbye to these gentlemen. Thank you, guys. This was a... I can't This was a party. Uh, This has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And the only man who likes my season of Saturday Night Live, Max <laughs> Allen Collins. He's the one. <laughs> and a return visit from our pal Dave Thomas. Thanks. This has been fun. I'm exhausted. I'm laughing. <laughs> Dave, have a wonderful dinner. Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, John. We love you. Thank you so much. Great to meet you, Gilbert. Oh, nice meeting you. Big fan, really. Thank Seriously. You. And we love Tom Poston and Dick DiBartolo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good night. All right. Fantastic. All right. Good night, guys. Thanks for the memory of sentimental verse. Nothing in my purse. And chuckles when the preacher said, for better or for worse. How lovely it was. Thanks for the memory. Of Schubert's serenade Little things of jade And traffic jams and anagrams And bills we never paid How lovely it was Strictly entre nous Darling, how are you? And how are all those little dreams that never did come true Awfully glad I met you Cheerio and toodaloo Thank you Thank you so much